1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, we're uncovering the mechanics behind the metropolis with physicist Laurie Winkless and her first book, Science in the City. Before we start the show, I just wanted to let you know that Little Atoms will be taking part in the inaugural London Podcast Festival at King's Place in King's Cross on Saturday the 24th of September. I'll be talking to The Guardian's own Hadley Freeman about her fantastic book, Life Moves Pretty Fast, which is about the lessons she learnt from watching 80s movies. So if you think we don't talk about dirty dancing and Ghostbusters enough on Little Atoms, this is the event you've been waiting for. Go to www.kingsplace.co.uk and search for Little Atoms there for tickets. And get in quick, this one's sure to sell out. Laurie Winkless is a physicist and writer currently based in London. Following a degree at Trinity College Dublin, a placement at NASA's Kennedy Space Centre and a Masters in Space Science at UCL, Laurie works at the National Physical Laboratory, specialising in materials. She's been communicating science to the public for more than a decade, working with schools and universities, the Royal Society, Forbes and the Naked Scientist amongst others. And she's given TEDx talks, hung out with astronauts and appeared in the Times magazine as a leading light in STEM. Laurie's first book is Science and the City, the Mechanics Behind the Metropolis, which we're going to talk about today. Laurie, welcome to Little Atoms.
2: Thank you very much, Neil. It's lovely to be here.
1: So why are you fascinated by cities?
2: I think it, there's loads of reasons that kind of led to the book, but I think partly because I live in London and living in London makes you a small bit obsessed with transport and getting from A to B as quickly as possible. I think that's a big part of it, actually, like just the, the dependency on on transport that you have in cities was what kind of initially started me thinking about this. But then my research background is material science and thermoelectric materials were what my kind of focus, my research focus was. They're materials that capture heat or temperature gradient and turn it into electricity. They have real world applications and I kind of that's always been a real interest of mine having a science that has a real world application. And again part of that comes back to how we build our cities and how we build structures and so much of what's around us already has Being the product of material science and I started to think about and wonder about how that would change in the future or if it would change at all if we would be able to get to these you know futuristic cities that the media likes to throw at us every so often so yeah it was a kind of a combination of of a kind of a love of transport interest in infrastructure a childhood spent doing a lot of things with my hands you know my dad's a retired engineer and was always really enthusiastic about my love of DIY and learning how to use tools so always very practical and um, that kind of led me into physics anyway but it's certainly led me towards the material science kind of applied research end of our research and then London was the kind of main inspiration because I've been here for over a decade now which is a bit scary <laughs> oh, So what
1: what's, what happens in the book? What do you do with the book?
2: So in it I try to give people like an idea of how we've gotten to the point we're at now so you know the cities the skyscrapers that are that you see around us how are they built? And then in each chapter I also look at kind of a bit of future gazing but I like to think very much not science fiction Mm -hmm. very much science fact so I've tried you know because I'm not an expert in all of this right so I'm an expert on a small portion of it so for the others I needed to go off and do a lot of research so that involves speaking to scientists or academics or, or researchers working in different sectors to talk to them about what they think is the most exciting thing in their sector and that started to help me figure out what I thought was practical and what wasn't so within each chapter I've tried to give a kind of a past present future kind of look at cities really The chapters themselves, they all have one word headings and that's Partly in homage to Prince because I'm a huge Prince fan and one of his albums had had just one word album titles and I listened to it while I was writing the proposal so uh, and the publishers liked it so I had to go with that um, but there are things like wet so it's all about water and waste or it might be loco so that's about trains and tunnels so it's trying to really just use everyday language to help people understand give people a primer actually mm-hmm. on how the city works.
1: Well before we go into each of the chapter headings Mm. in detail just something about cities in general Mm. as you mentioned you do look at in some respects cities of the past or certainly how the technology has got to be the history of the steam train and things for instance but cities themselves there's always been distinct features of landscape and whatever that cities needed even from the earliest cities that cities needed to form isn't
2: it yeah no absolutely and this is one that i think we're something one thing we're going to struggle with as we're moving forward really is is water is a huge one so yeah people built their societies their small communities beside a good clean water supply when we started to farm we needed arable land on which to grow our crops or look after our domestic livestock and those two things you know food and drinks really and an ability to somewhere to Kind of clean ourselves it's a very human thing, and actually what that's meant is that in cities now where cities have grown have been the most arable bits of land, so mm. we're actually kind of we're growing our buildings, our concrete structures on top of what was originally farmland, so we're kind of pushing the farm further away from the cities as our cities get larger and larger, and then we have that challenge of that. Perhaps single water supply in some cities, May it be it a, a river like in across Egypt, like a, a huge amount of mm-hmm. their water comes directly from the Nile. They get it from almost nowhere else. You know, when you have that and you're trying to just look into that one source of water and then try to get it out to many more people, it gets really really challenging. So you've got those things that. They are the same challenges regardless. And then as we became kind of more industrial, then we have the issue of energy and communications, power, and all of those things. And they have become just part of the DNA of the city as we see it. Um, Of course, it wasn't back in the day, but now to imagine living in the centre of a city without a reliable electricity Supply and probably fiber optic cables for internet access um, would be unthinkable. And again, we we still need to find. We're looking for better ways to produce our electricity and to get it to us. And I definitely found there were some interesting things in that area that cities are looking at things slightly differently from mm-hmm. others. And they kind of come up with the structure of the book. Really, they they're the kind of ingredients, kind of seven ingredients. I think I have them in the book. Um, where they are the ingredients that all cities need in order to thrive.
1: And we are now, at this point, the first point, really, in human mm. history where more people live in cities than don't. Yes. So, again, those cities are just going to get... You know, the, that's not going to change in the future. No is that The cities are going to get bigger that land use is going to become even more intense
2: yeah absolutely and there's been lots because one of the things I looked at right at the beginning which was one of the reasons that I thought this would be timely to write about was just that that UN announcement in end of 2014 that more than 50% of us were now urbanites in some way and all the predictions okay there are lots of predictions but they all say that that proportion's only going to increase right so we're in a situation that we've gone past the point at which that's going to reverse anytime soon Mm -hmm. so yeah as you said the land land use issue is a big one and not just for food and buildings either because you have lots of people who are looking at alternative uses of land be it to grow crops for biofuels for example and in some cities and in some countries in the world that's already causing huge conflict Mm -hmm. and as our populations grow those conflicts are only going to get more important and much much more serious and science and engineering i think have a huge role to play in that But the other side of that is engagement, engagement with the public and trying to understand what society needs versus what engineering can give them, for example.
1: And we're right at the end of the interview. We're going to come back and look at, imagine what a city of the future might look like We'll speculate. But um, let's start with buildings then at the beginning, as you do. And particularly you look at skyscrapers. Yeah. And we'll look at some of the technological leaps that made them possible as we go along but first of all let's just talk about what they're what they're built from we've built buildings houses forever why can't we build a skyscraper out of bricks
2: yeah so that's a really interesting one because like bricks and stones were what we used once we moved on from straw and wood we started to use brick and stone um because they're strong and heavy and tough and you know you can build a really strong structure with those as you said we build our houses with them mostly still today so they work (laughs) But the thing about a skyscraper is that it's not just a building. It also needs to support its own weight. So when you start to get things, materials that are very, very heavy, like brick and stone, you will get to a situation where the building can actually collapse in on itself. So the bricks at the lower level will start to crack because Mm -hmm. they're supporting the bricks from the upper level. So in order to get taller stone and brick you could only get us so far really because we got stone and brick and then we started to have steel frames so we started to build steel frames and and that came for me that's one of the biggest changes in cities one of the biggest enablers of cities was the move from kind of iron to steel where we've got much tougher materials that are lightweight and strong so then we could build slightly taller buildings that would have a stone cladding and a steel frame so that's a bit taller again but to keep getting taller and you know the tallest one in the world is eight i think it's 828 meters tall which is the burj khalifa in dubai to get to those reaches steel wasn't enough and stone and brick were too heavy so that's when we started to look towards concrete and reinforced concrete in particular so if you've ever walked past like a construction site and you see concrete panels and you see these, like, these sticking up bits of wire that come out through the concrete, that's a steel cage that's embedded in the concrete. Because concrete is very strong in some ways, but it can also crack. So the addition of steel gives concrete like, some ductility, so it kind of allows it to be a bit more flexible. And if it starts to crack, the steel helps to hold the concrete together. And it's considerably more lightweight, believe it or not, than you know stone bricks of the same size if you make a concrete blocks.
1: And there's also isn't there I remember it's in this book, but I remember mm. talking to Mark Mirdovnik about this as yeah. well. There's there's a weird coincidence, isn't there between the rebars and and
2: concrete in yeah. that they can
1: sort of cohabit together. Yeah,
2: because that that was a really cool thing, and it's kind of a bit apocryphal. We don't we're not sure whether they uh, the people who have invented it because it's kind of happened it was co-invented by Mm -hmm. a few different people whether they realized it and then that's what led to it or whether it was kind of a happy accident that we discovered along the way but concrete and steel the steel bars in reinforced concrete expand at the same rate when you've got changes in temperature Mm -hmm. so that means that as it gets hotter or colder the material a piece of reinforced concrete will change shape all at the same time all at the same rate so you won't have a situation where say you had like a copper pipe inside some concrete that's going to have a different thermal expansion so it's going to get fatter as it gets hotter at a different rate than the concrete will. So in that case the concrete will actually crack because of the copper inside it mm-hmm. you absolutely don't want that it goes against what, what we need reinforcements in concrete for like killing itself in the inside basically um so yeah the steel and the and the concrete just happen to expand at the same rate so they're very happy bedfellows actually yeah and it's and it's been a huge enabler for construction huge enabler
1: and then the other one is glass so the yeah. changes in first of all glass production but also this idea of the of the curtain wall on the building
2: yeah yeah because I, I i kind of and i think probably like a lot of people, I assumed that in many in most skyscrapers the glass had a structural role to play you know that it was part of the structure and if you took the building out then it would be structurally less able to withstand well certainly able to withstand the, the weather but you know structurally I thought it was important but in the vast vast majority of skyscrapers they're not so they're called curtain walls because they literally hang off the edge of the, the outside of the building so they're there to look pretty and you know to keep the elements out but yeah they actually structurally don't add anything to it the thing with glass, though, is that you have people inside the building and uh, they might interact with the glass and they might <laughs> cause some structural damage to the glass. So what they tend to use in skyscrapers is like a, a toughened glass, so glass that's been heat-treated and often two layers of toughened glass with a layer of like a, a glue or an epoxy in between. So if you've ever seen like a piece of glass that's shattered but still held in place, that's probably one of these layered glass structures mm-hmm. that have just totally become the norm. And the glue is kind of similar, similar transparency to the glass. So, it, you know, looks largely to our eyes as if we're just looking through a single sheet of glass. But really, you know, the glass is there to keep the elements out rather than to actually help to build the structure itself. The structure very much is self-support and the glass just adds that, you know, you're gonna say "qua" at the end of it to make it shiny and exciting.
1: And that glass is well, that safety glass that you just described again, yeah. because that's to you know stop a, a seagull flying into a building and glass yeah. falling down and impaling someone.
2: Exactly. Like, either either way, you lose. You know, you want you want that glass to stay <laughs> structurally safe and sound for as long as possible. Yeah. Like I don't know if you saw those um, those uh, there's in a region in China they've built this glass bridge and uh, you know people are really freaked out about it as mm-hmm. you'd imagine. You know, walking across this huge valley over a piece of glass. But the amount, the glass treatment that they've used for this and the layers and layers and layers of glass they've used, you know, you can go at it with a sledgehammer. You can drive trucks over this. It's not going to crack. And, you know, it's kind of a showboating project, but it still shows the, the strength of glass that mm. we can get to. And that's all been a gradual development in glass technologies that's gotten us to a point at which that's no longer a ridiculous idea to build a glass bridge. I'm Gaia Vince, and you're listening to
1: Little Atoms a radio show about ideas and culture. It's all right building an 800 metre high building, yeah. but there's another technology that's sort of made that possible, yeah. which means we don't have to walk up 800 <laughs> metres worth of flights of stairs.
2: Yeah, so the lift or the elevator, whichever accent you prefer, um, that's become one of these things that I've totally changed the way I view them, because I think for the longest time I saw them as like a, a result... A result of a tall building, you know, people were like, well, it's tall, so we need to make it easier for people to get to the top floors. But actually, the more I've kind of looked into it, the more I felt that it was actually the reason that tall buildings happened at all. Because tall buildings weren't practical at all until there was an easier way to move people up and down and goods up and down through the structure. And, you know, what started off as a kind of a a sideshow, like a little project, a little cool project, has really, I think, kind of been the core of the skyscraper boom that we're in now you know we haven't left this because you have one lift that allows people to go to say 15 stories then a 15 story building makes sense it also means that people who um, might own that kind of very expensive precious land in the center of a city will think I can fit more in that space because I can now build a taller building so I can have double or triple the number of apartments or whatever And for the really, really tall buildings like the Burj Khalifa, you still you still have a limit, right? That you still have to switch lifts in the Burj Khalifa, and that's um, so you get up to X floor. I can't remember what floor it is, but the lift will take you so far. You then get out, and then you have to get onto another lift that takes you from that floor to the very, very top. But regardless, without that structure, without that lift shaft in the centre of the building, without that very easy, very quick way to move people through the structure. The buildings would just be ridiculous they would make no sense they would be totally impractical so yeah i'm a huge a huge fan of the lift now these days
1: and that particular instance the burj khalifa is Mm. a good example of where you know the lift i mean this is obviously the case nowadays with most skyscrapers but the lift shafts are integral to its structure you know the whole rest of the building is built around them yeah and i want to talk about that particularly in Mm. i want to move on to you know another thing that we have to think about when we're building really tall buildings is that it you know we don't want it swaying in the wind. Mm. Buildings have to be designed to be sort of windproof. Yeah. And that example is particularly interesting, I thought.
2: Yeah, so the Burj Khalifa is, yeah, as you said, there's basically the obvious option is make it windproof. So that will be making it streamlined and making it kind of shaped like in like a wing on an airplane. So that shape's called an airfoil. Mm-hmm. It's also the same shape as bird wings and that's not a coincidence, right? That's why it's why it's that shape. So that's what a lot of buildings will do. A lot of skyscrapers you see around will just not be a big block they'll be kind of have curved edges and they'll try and swoop the wind around the edge of the buildings but yeah once you start getting above 500 meters then the wind is a huge huge concern so for the burj khalifa the chief engineer of that is a guy called bill baker from chicago which is kind of home of skyscrapers actually and uh, I got to interview him about it, and he he describes his design as not windproofing, but confusing the wind. So his structure is designed specifically not just to deflect the wind, but to deflect the wind in such a way that it doesn't build up any turbulence. This is a problem with wind turbines as well, where you have nice uh, kind of uh, calm sheets of wind that go through the turbine, then they become turbulent at the end. In a building, uh, if you have wind that's passing th- around the building, you get something called vortices. So you get these small little blobs of turbulent air that are shed. So they call vortex shedding is the technical term for it. So as the wind moves past, these vortices form at the back of the building. And that's not a problem in itself, right? That's what happens all the time. But these vortexes are periodic, which means they happen regularly and frequently. So you get a kind of a rhythm to the wind, right? So you get the wind building up a rhythm. And what happens with that is then you're, you start to cause a slight sway in the building, slight sway. But as these vortexes are continuously, vortices, excuse me, are continuously shed, that rhythm will increase like a metronome. So the building will start to actually sway in response to those blobs of air that are being produced at the, at the back of the building. And one of the things with the Burj Khalifa, when they first designed it, you know, they make these tiny models, scale models of the buildings and stick them into wind tunnels. And they had a huge problem that they got these vortices building up on one side of the building and they knew it was going to be structurally just impossible. So they were ready to restart the build, the whole design and everything. And then realized if they just rotated the building by like just a few degrees in one direction, it meant that the prevalent wind didn't build up in the same way. So, um, yeah, wind is like, is as much a problem for skyscrapers as it is for airplanes, like really genuinely. But yeah, confusing the wind, the idea that you have this, this structure in, in the Burj Khalifa sense. If you could look at it from the top down, which is pretty difficult because it's pretty tall, <laughs> but it looks like a spiral staircase that's kind of turning up towards the building. So you don't have these lovely cylinders around which these vortices can form. You don't. Have, you have this structure that just confuses the wind so much. It stops the vortexes forming at every angle. And um, So you just have a turbulent wind, but not this rhythmic beat of wind that causes problems. It still moves a tiny bit, but that's physically impossible to find one that doesn't. But it's well within. Limits,
1: and I had no idea until I read this book that we have wind to thank for uh, revolving doors.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, so, because I, I mean, revolving doors are great because they're really awesome and they're really fun. Uh, but they do actually have a physical benefit as well. So, if you go into any of the like fancy buildings in Canary war for any of those, generally you're walking into a big open lobby, right? If you had a normal door what you end up getting is this weird exchange of air and it's something called a stack effect. So when you have a tall building, like a chimney basically that's that's where the name comes from You'll have air that's moving around inside the building. You, know, you might have air conditioning. You might have cooling or heating. It's got its own little air system inside the building, sealed inside it. And then, of course, you've got the environment outside. If the weather, say, it, they'll say the weather's really cold outside. So the building inside, the building is warmed by its heaters. So the air inside the building is then hot. You slam open the door. From the outside, cold air from the outside rushes into the building because the heat air inside the building has risen up to the ceiling of the of the foyer or through the whole structure in some cases, Um, and you get this wind. So you, you lose papers will start flying all over the place. And that, you know, seems like a kind of an inconvenience, but actually that can cause that very expensive for a start because you then need to ramp the heaters up a bit more or you need to make sure that you've got enough energy all the time. And the same is true when it's when it's air conditioned inside and it's warm outside, except this time the cold air rushes out the door. So then you lose that really expensive air that you've had to cool very expensively. And the thing about a rotating door is that it's basically always closed, if you think about it. So although people are moving through the, if you are moving through your rotating door, there's always a door behind you that seals the gap. So even though people are moving in and out, the door is always closed. So you stop this, you kind of counteract the stack effect. You keep the air that's meant to be inside the building inside, and you keep the air largely outside.
1: City Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Laurie Winkless and we're talking about her book Science and the City, the mechanics behind the metropolis. And Laurie, we've got a building now Mm. and let's talk about how we power it. So basically what I want to know is how does the power get to that plug in the wall? Where does it come from?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting point because I think, I don't know if you've ever seen, I wrote about this in the book, but if you've ever seen this Dara sketch where he says, you know, if we'd like to think if we were transported back in time that we would be revered like gods. You know, we'd go back to the Renaissance and say, oh, we've got this box that keeps things cold. And uh, how does it do it? How does it do Oh, well, this, you know, it gets power and it pumps the air out. And yeah, where does the power come from? Yeah, from the wall. Yeah. And and that's kind of how most people feel about electricity. And no, you don't need to think about it. It's so easy for us in the developed world. We can just plug stuff in and not think about it. But yeah, it's actually there's a there's a hugely long chain of things that gets that electricity to us. And really, we can start from going back through the plug or from the generation station. But say like in the UK, we get a lot of our electricity from oil and gas. We also get a lot from uh, renewables to a lot of wind energy. And that's really, really exciting. And some nuclear energy as well, of course regardless of how we've kind of generated it the result is that we turn a turbine so we spin something around and that spits out electricity to us that's effectively how pretty much every every type of energy generation large-scale energy generation works that electricity comes out at incredibly high voltages, much, 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 much higher than we would want to be coming into our plug sockets. Um, so then for it needs to get from the generation station to our house, and it does that via the transmission network. So these are the pylons that you see around, dotted around the landscape, and these very, very tall pylons with these cables above them, and they are carrying the electricity at these very, very high voltages. Then we've gotten it to somewhere close by somewhere within the region and now we need to start getting it to our local city so then it needs to go into the distribution network so that's the tends to be more invisible you do still have some above the ground and um, pylons and things but a lot of the distribution network is actually under our feet and that's at much lower voltages so to get from the higher voltages to those lower distribution voltages it goes through a substation which we will all be familiar with Very ugly, big grey, green boxes of steel with cables everywhere and mini pylons surrounding it. The substation is effectively a big chain of what are called transformers. So these are basically big bits of steel that have wires on one side, a smaller number of wires on the other side. They use a process called electromagnetic induction to reduce the voltage to a lower level. And you can do that again and again and again. So you have a chain of these transformers that you're stepping down the voltages from these incredibly high voltages that's been popped out of the generation station down to something that we can safely then pipe effectively around the city. It'll probably also go through some more transformers on the way to your street. And then it will go through the last one really before it comes into the plug to your house. So then you get it to the correct current and voltage that we can then plug all of our standard devices into
1: but let's talk about how it actually gets there okay. because right we're going to talk about water in a bit yeah and i turn a tap on yeah and water comes out of it yeah right? and that water's come down a pipe and somewhere over there in the distance there's a lake or something there's a reservoir yeah. where that water's come from same with gas i turn the oven on and gas comes out of it and that yeah. gas comes from a big storage facility down a pipe into my house yeah what does electricity do
2: so electricity moves through cables, metal cables always, um, because what electricity is, and it's, it's very important to say, I guess, is that it's not an invention of us, right? Humans did not invent electricity. All of the distribution network, transmission network, all of that stuff, it's just about stripping electrons off things and then allowing them to move through a wire. That's it. And everything in the universe is electrical, arguably. Every single atom in our universe has a nucleus in the middle with protons and neutrons sitting in the middle there and then this cloud of electrons around it. OK, that's not accurate for a quantum physicist, but it's accurate enough for us to talk about. And what, when we're trying to produce electricity, we're really trying to release some of these electrons from atoms. We're trying to steal the electricity because they are negatively charged. They are the heart of electricity. So current electricity is basically a flow of electrons. And we use metal wires because they are conductive to electricity. So these electrons that we spit out of our electricity generation station, they will hop along through the metal wires very, very quickly and until they get and they'll do that at these different voltages that we have defined in some ways. So it might be because the way that we have produced the electricity. So say you know a nuclear power plant It produces a lot of heat energy, so they use that to heat up water and that, that hot water produces steam, and that steam turns a turbine, and that turbine is connected to a coil of wire. The coil of wire spins inside a magnet, and that spits out the stream of electrons. That's going to produce a lot more electricity than, or a lot, you know, many more electrons than, say, a single wind turbine. But they're not comparable in that sense. But they're all about producing electrons and then the, moving the electrons through the network via metal cables, always metal cables, to our home.
1: Now, all of these ways of generating electricity, mm. whether it's a, a nuclear power station or a coal-fired power station mm. or a wind turbine, mm. with none of them do we get do we put, you know, a, a certain amount of energy into it and we get the same amount of yeah. electricity. Yeah. They're mm. all inefficient in in certain ways. And the ones that we ideally want to move to mm. um which are the, the green energies, be it um hydropower or, or wind or, or the sun, yeah, particularly inefficient in our own country um solar power these ones are all at the lower end of the efficiency level how do we how, what's going on to make them better
2: the renewables in particular are starting to they're really starting to catch up now um in both in terms of cost efficiency and in terms of kind of power efficiency um it's important to note though that coal-fired power plants are incredibly inefficient i think some people think if we talk about it, a solar panel that has an efficiency of 25%, that that's just terrible and just completely a waste of time. A lot of coal plants will produce, they're no more than 40% efficient. So you'll put in much, much more energy than you will get out, more than twice the amount of energy than you'll get out of it. So, But within the within the kind of renewable sector in particular, lots of changes, especially within solar power. One thing that I think is kind of not necessarily obvious is that we use silicon, right? We know what silicon solar cells look like. It's that lovely kind of bluey-gray material shiny and it's on a lot of roofs on houses now and it's it's becoming popular and cheap but actually silicon is not the ideal material it's not the best possible material for turning sunlight into electricity we've used it because we know how to use it you know we've it's the same material that's used in all of our electronics that we have we've become adept at producing it it's made from sand right so it's cheap it's easy to make it's reliable enough we know how to do it so it's always been like It's good enough. It's fine. We're starting to see researchers looking at brand new materials. So they're not trying to make silicon more efficient, although that's still worth the effort. It still absolutely is worth the effort. But we're starting to see material scientists looking, starting from scratch, basically. So one of the most exciting things that I found out about in the book were um, perovskite materials, So this is a particular class of materials. I think they're like calcium titanate, so kind of calcium-titanium compounds. But actually it's their shape, it's the shape of the molecule that's interesting. They have naturally much higher efficiencies at, turning sunlight into electricity and they can do it they can be designed so that you can do it at larger numbers of wavelengths because at the moment we only capture a tiny bit of the sun's Mm -hmm. sunlight but actually these materials you could capture far more of the sunlight and therefore increase the efficiency but the other the kind of bonus the side the side bonus of perovskite materials is that they can do this with a lot less physical material silicon cells are that thickness because they need that much thickness to get that enough electrons popping out of the other side of the cell these perovskite materials can be so thin they can be transparent believe it or not so they actually um harvest some of the wavelengths of light that our eyes can't see so they look transparent to us but they're really they're really quite efficient these were discovered like five or six years ago and the efficiencies have more than doubled in that time. So they are absolutely skyrocketing through this research. They're producing lots of great papers. You know, this isn't just a PR speculation thing. These guys are producing research papers that are of the highest quality. People are reproducing their results all over the world. So there's a real excitement and a real buzz around these materials. And when I spoke to these guys, they, uh, their ambition was amazing. It was what they see in their minds as, as the ideal future kind of combines the what we talked about talked about earlier with the buildings and and the power they want to clad skyscrapers Mm -hmm. not with curtain walls well with curtain walls made of perovskite materials so you have a a skyscraper that then also produces electricity and that's when you started to get i think really really excited about the future and as i said this isn't sci-fi this is really really reliable research
1: There's one other new technology, or or I say new technology, but um, a method that's being used in a a number of cities around the world, but it sounds really exciting. Mm. I guess in some respects it's, it's again, to do with their location. I think of Iceland, for instance, Mm. and, you know, their use of the thermal springs but there's this yeah. um is it chpc combined heat power and cooling yeah system that's being used tell us about that
2: yeah so these are becoming really popular now and a lot of a lot of cities are that are building new structures are, are building them into the structure so they're becoming inherent into the structure which is quite exciting and what they do is they're basically like a, it's a tiny gas power plant basically <laughs> in in a building so instead of having a gas fire power plant that's miles and miles and miles away from the city that you then have to pump all the electrons out of that and into your home this has its own mini one in the basement Um, so that Gives you the heating because we actually in the UK we get a huge amount more of our energy rather than electricity but our energy from the gas grid. So this gives you the heating, it would also give you some cooling, and it also gives you the power. So you get this tiny little system that's inside a building that doesn't isn't connected to anything outside of the building, it's self contained. It doesn't sound all that renewable though because it's still based on gas, right? But the really cool things that have been happening, and there's one building in Sydney that I'm thinking of in particular where they are using, they're basically. Sucking methane from sewers to get the gas. So these gas plants, they don't care what gas it is, right? They don't care if it stinks. (laughs) They don't care if it's been produced from rotting feces. It doesn't matter as long as it's a gas um, in this case. So these guys are actually like, they're tapping into the sewers in order to. This is their dream, anyway. In order to kind of capture the methane to power their their gas plant, at the moment they're buying in the methane, but they're really retesting really out this idea of just getting it directly from the sewers. And that that's when we start to things become more much more sustainable because we're starting to close the loop a bit. You know, a lot of our losses in our electricity supply come along the route from the generation station to your house. A lot of the loss happens when it's being generated, but also. Huge amounts are lost when it's being transmitted to you. So, if you then have a system that's distributing electricity within your building, then the efficiencies are naturally higher as well. I'm Helen Scales, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a podcast about ideas and culture.
1: You brought us right down to the sewer, so yeah. I guess we should we'll move on to water. Okay, now. yeah. <clears throat> In the chapter where you look at both sewers, but also you know where our drinking water comes from. I guess when I've thought of this, if I've ever thought of it, I did sort of presume. it was a circular thing again Mm -hmm. we would have a a reservoir where we would collect water that would be treated that would come out of a tap that we would then you know flush away down the toilet or yeah or flush away down the bath yeah and that goes off to some treatment plant and then somehow gets back to that reservoir and comes back to me you know a few months later but that's not actually strictly what happens. Isn't no,
2: I mean it's a it kind of is a kind of is it's kind of a general thing. But yeah, water treatment itself is like a, a sped up version of what happens in nature. So, if we had to use our nearby lake as a toilet, for example, in in historic times, eventually that water would the what we've produced would be kind of cleaned out of the water and it would be clean enough for us to drink. But the issue is now that, of course, we, the demands that we put on our, on our water cycle are so much higher than they've ever been because our population so enormous. So we have to use other ways to speed up what nature would do itself. So yeah, water treatment is one of the things that varied a lot between the cities I looked at. So some use, most of us basically use a kind of a four or five step process where we add some chemicals to get any of the big dirt out. So we do initial filter, get rid of all the leaves and stuff that might be there. Then we add some chemicals to make all of the other bits of dirt join together. Those bits of dirt this is called flocks because the process is called flocculation, which is like a most wonderful word. <laughs> um, but yeah, those flocks get bigger and bigger. And then eventually they'll be so heavy, they'll drop to the bottom, so that's sedimentation. And then we can also filter our water through things like sand, like gravel, very, very thin, fi- basically filters, but we use a sand to do it. And that's what would happen in nature, right? Yeah. You'd have like a bed of sand, water would dribble through it and get cleaned up. But because we're also putting more things into the water now than would naturally occur, so we might have, say, pharmaceuticals or we have industrial chemicals, then we often have to take other steps to clean those out in particular. The water and waste thing, it is certainly a cycle. It is certainly a cycle, but it's a much, much longer cycle and a Mm -hmm. much more complex cycle than perhaps we would think. But yeah, so your water that comes out of the tap, especially if you're lucky enough to live in a a wealthy city, will certainly be cleaner than or as clean as anything that comes out of a bottle on a shelf in a supermarket and actually the bottle on the shelf in the supermarket has probably used exactly the same process to clean the water as your local water supplier has used
1: um, or indeed come straight from a tap
2: so yeah indeed that's what i mean it's like you know you pour it out you pour it in you do the measurements you're going to have the same kind of mineral content same chemical makeup as you do from the stuff that costs a pound a bottle in Saint threes
1: let's talk about some of the places where the water comes from Mm. because a huge amount I mean m- most of our water doesn't come from lakes or melted snow or, yeah. or rain Yeah. Um, I mean obviously it came from there originally but it comes from <laughs> underground
2: yeah so the aquifers are, are interesting because again they're another, another bit of our cities and actually of our world in general that we just never really think about water when we have when water hits the surface of the earth it you know might get absorbed in soil or clay or into lake or river but, it, yeah, as you said, a huge amount of it actually trickles its way through porous rocks to be stored in what is called an aquifer, but it's basically just a sponge that's full of water, and that water has it has naturally gone through that process of being cleaned, so it's had to trickle down through the water it's had bits of dirt and and everything taken away from it by this trickling down process so the water in aquifers is, is very clean it's really really clean so what people will do to try and move that out of the water is they effectively put like an, a well down into it and generally pressurize air to push the water up under pressure sometimes they suck it up it depends on where you do it really but this groundwater is is already much cleaner than the water that would be say in you know in in, in an urban uh, river for example because it's had this natural treatment that it's gone through and every city in pretty much every city in the world is dependent on their groundwater is dependent on this water in aquifers and in some places we're seeing real problems with that we're starting to see things like seawater ingress so where land has been drained for more buildings more skyscrapers that's actually left a bit of a gap effectively in the groundwater in the aquifer so seawater starting to creep in we can't drink salt water. So if we have aquifers that are starting to become salty, then we no longer have drinking water. So there's, there's lots and lots of engineering challenges around keeping fresh water that we can drink away from not just waste, but also seawater, which we can't drink.
1: Well, so let's talk about what we could do other ways in which we could reuse water. Then mm. you talk about the euthamistic uh, grey water and black water. Yeah. I'll ask you to explain what they are, but then we can talk about how we're starting to discover ways in which we can reuse them.
2: Yeah, um, if anyone was at my talk at Wilderness, they'll realise that i really, really interested in poo <laughs> and the reuse of that within our cities. So black water, when they talk about sewage, right, sewage is one of those old words. Wastewater is the official uh, new word, but that is, is split into this grey water and black water. So... Grey water is basically all the water that we've cleaned ourselves with and our clothes with and our dishes with. So, so it, it's got soap in it. Yeah, it's basically. got soap in it, and that's basically it. So it's a bit greyish, right? Black water is very different altogether. That's just what comes out of the toilet. So it all it contains feces effectively. And that is not suitable for human consumption because with faeces we often get pathogens and where you anywhere you have water and waste mixing together especially black water you have huge 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 problems so grey water is much much cleaner than black water and actually it's very prevalent in the average home like if you think about how often you boil a kettle for a cup of tea or you stick on the dishwasher or whatever you actually use a huge amount of water grey water That's drinking quality water in most cities that we're using to wash our clothes in when actually we don't really need to. We could probably get away with slightly dirtier water to do that and look after the drinking water for ourselves. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, research being done on on the use of grey water within the home. So I spoke to a researcher in Cardiff called Stan Golunsky who's kind of imagining a future where we have a new white good in the house that would basically all of the grey water, so again the clean stuff that we produce, goes into this system. It is cleaned using gold nanoparticles. And though that sounds expensive, it's actually very, very cost effective. And then it's reused within those same systems. So your tap to wash your dishes with will be a different tap and that will have slightly cleaned, disinfected grey water because it's perfectly safe to be reused. Whereas then our drinking water tap would just be just for drinking water, drinking quality water. But all the other grey stuff we can reuse very happily within the house and many, many times. So again, closing that cycle down. Arguably the black water stuff is more interesting in terms of the engineering challenges that come with it. There are a number of cities that actually have vehicles that are powered by methane that's been produced directly from poo. <laughs> so in a in a sewage plant, in a wastewater plant, they will collect all of the black water, all of this the human feces, animal feces, and as it starts to kind of just disappear into the ether it produces methane so as it degrades it produces this gas and that gas is put into gas tanks and you can run taxis on it you can run buses on it and my favorite is the one in bristol which is the number two bus very aptly named which is powered by poo it really is there's no kind of other way of thinking about it it is powered by poo and that is really interesting because we're very icky you know we've got this real ick factor about human poo and yet for generations we've used animal manure to grow our crops right but there's something there's something kind of in our heads about a human feces that we just don't like and as I see it we just have to get over that because we are in a closed cycle the earth has all of the water it has on earth there's no way to produce more of it we have to worry about our waste because there's nowhere to put it. There is no away, which is one of the things I say in the book a lot. We are a closed cycle, so we need to get better at using and reusing the stuff, even if it feels or sounds a bit icky.
1: Well, there's one way of making more water, mm. which is insanely inefficient but it's done yeah. in certain places which is the, you know, the turning of seawater yeah. into drinking water. How does that happen?
2: Yeah, that's, it's it's uh, it's actually becoming a really big thing now so like in, in countries like Dubai where they don't have surface water, they have hardly any groundwater either, um, they have to be really, they have to think about ways to get water to them. So desalination is this taking seawater and basically ripping the salt out of it. So seawater is very similar to drinking water except for the big ingredient of salts, which is sodium chloride and they're big big molecules sodium chloride molecules are big they've developed the system where it's as you said really energy efficient where you basically force water through these incredibly fine filters and it forces the salt to stick onto one side and the water the removed water to be on the other side they tend to use electricity to do this make it more efficient because salt is electrically conductive so this is where the the power question comes in. It's so unbelievably inefficient. You know, it's it would it never it will never balance out. You'll never get as much out as you as you can justify using the electricity for. But where you have cities in dry countries where they don't have surface water or they don't have a clean water system that they can rely on, it is the only choice for now. There are ways that people are trying to make them more efficient. Like they're improving these filters. They're making them better at removing the salt so that you need less energy energy to push the water through them and although that seems like a small thing those gains add up and add up and add up so at the moment it's a it's a last it's a, an emergency kind of decision you would never choose to do that for all of your water ever but it does work it is effective and we may see more of it in the future <laughs>
1: This is Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking about science and the city, the mechanics behind the metropolis. We have Laurie Winkless, And we were talking about water, and I was going to say something about the rest of the waste, right? Mm. Obviously as well as our own waste, the mm. cities and, you know, we get through a, you know, a hell of a lot of waste materials that end up in landfills. I want to skip over that though, because I want to start talking about roads. And actually, in talking about roads... You mentioned a guy, I think it's, was it in India where he's yeah. started this amazing technique for incorporating waste plastic yeah. into roads. road. So tell me about that.
2: So this this guy's been called the Plastic Man as his nickname and he is adorable. We spoke on the phone a number of times because we kept losing each other <laughs> online. But yeah, he's he's from a rural bit of India basically, but he's a, a, an academic. And so he's a researcher. And India has this huge plastic waste problem. they're not the only country to have it. We all have it, but yeah it's kind of it's been kind of talked about a lot in india and um, so plastic bags and things that we that always go to landfill and he kind of saw this as an opportunity a, a kind of a free ingredient that he could think about using in infrastructure so roads themselves are incredibly dirty, like they're very very dirty tricky to make and um, they rely on a huge volume of materials and one of those materials is bitumen right so tar which is the by-product or, or the product of fossil fuels so immediately alarm bells should be going when you think about how along your nearest road is think about how much bitumen might be in that road and how much fossil fuel must have needed to be dug up in order to produce that so you know we really need to get away with that as much as we do getting away from using them in our cars um so yeah so basically this this researcher looked at plastic bags and thought i can use that so he's been replacing a proportion of bitumen and um, with melted plastic bags and he can use almost any type of plastic, mostly though the fine stuff, so the the plastic bag type stuff, which is really difficult to recycle. Generally, like chunkier bits of plastic are relatively easy to reuse for sure. But plastic bags, once they start to degrade, are a pain. So yeah, he basically collects all of this waste plastic from a landfill, cleans it, melts it, adds it to the basically to the rocks or the gravel that's used to build the road, and that creates like a plastic coating on each of these on each of these little bits of gravel. And that is it actually it acts as a waterproofing as well, which is a kind of a, another side benefit, and then they can mix in with the bitumen and then you get the tar gravel mix that we're so familiar with if you look down at your nearest road and in replacing some of that bitumen, he's reducing the cost of roads for a start, he's also reducing the environmental impact of roads, and importantly, although it sounds very dull, it doesn't change the way roads are built, so a lot of newer technologies people disengage from or think are too futuristic because they will require an entirely new way for us to do something or to think of something. So the things, the construction industry tends to like lower hanging fruit. So something that they can just use immediately. And this is exactly the same system. It just adds one extra step and he can do that locally, as it were. And it's all over India now, his roads, his plastic roads. And the waterproofing benefit thing means that actually he said, now I haven't seen a lot of peer-reviewed research on this and I have been looking for it, but he believes that he sees fewer potholes on his roads, on his plastic roads, than on the non-plastic roads. And he thinks it's because this addition of plastic adds this lovely waterproof layer around each little rock and it stops cracks forming.
1: I want to talk about how we're going to power cars mm. in the future. You talk about both hydrogen cars, but also advances in electric cars as well. The one that was particularly interested to me was um, the idea of induction charging yes. in the road. Yes, yeah yeah how does that work
2: yeah so this is this is one of my favorite things because the biggest challenge right with electric vehicles is is range anxiety i love that there's a word for it (laughs) but the the kind of panic that you as a as an electric car owner might feel to know that you're still quite far away from your nearest recharging point and really you know new batteries will get us so far we're increasing the range all the time and that is great and should be hugely lauded but actually there's a lot there in that ability to recharge on the go as it were so this particular one the the one I talk about in the book in particular is in uh, Korea right it's in Gumi and they're trialing it for their buses the city's buses and they are all the same so they're all identical buses they're all electric buses fully electric buses and uh they've designed this section of roadway that underneath it you have a series of inductors so basically magnets effectively and buried into the road with loads and loads of sensors and it's a normal road so normal cars drive along it and they don't know anything different but as any of these buses drive along the road the bus senses the uh, inductor and the inductor senses the bus as it were so it turns on the magnets and with everything to do with electricity you're constantly changing energy from one form to another so the electric motors, the batteries, the electric system on board the bus can basically be recharged by the magnetic energy that's produced by the magnets under the road. So as the buses drive along the road, their batteries are being slowly recharged, just like trickle recharged, but continuously. This is a road that all of the buses go down. It's very close to the depot. So every time the buses drive down the road, they get a little bit of charge injected without any kind of plugging in needed. And that means that those buses can run all day. They don't need to go back and recharge at all. They can just run all day because they all run down this road many, many, many times every day. It's a really, really impressive project. And it's very exciting because it started to twig other people's interest. But the challenge is that with these systems, it's designed specifically for that bus. So that bus with that particular battery capacity, with that particular electric motor, And it can't charge, even if you had an electric vehicle that could sense it, it can't necessarily charge your electric vehicle. I think in the book I talk about it like bottles of water, trying to fill different sized bottles with the same amount of water. It's much more challenging when you have electric vehicles of different sizes and shapes because they each have different recharging facilities. Like when you think about your smartphone might charge up more slowly than say your e-reader or whatever. So the same is true for buses versus cars versus eventually maybe electric trucks. yeah you also start to see people who are trying to develop systems that are smart enough to kind of measure how much empty space is in a battery in a car and go oh yeah we can charge we can give you this much extra charge and that would be like a one size fits all situation and that's been trialed right now and being developed by a small a small new zealand company and uh yeah it's kind of building on this amazing inductive in-road charging which you know is effectively you know those charging mats you can get Mm -hmm. for your smartphones it's the same thing it's just scaled up And that's really exciting because that will start to make electric vehicles very, very practical.
1: What about self-driving cars then? I'm not convinced they will be a thing because i can imagine all self-driving cars or all human driven cars i just can't imagine the situation where half of the cars on the road are self-driving and half of them are humans that just sounds like chaos
2: yeah it does it definitely does sound like chaos because i think like one of the things is that it's not the tech that's holding us back like we have all the tech we can build driverless cars google and other companies are showing it all the time the tech is there but yeah it's that it's that interface between human and driverless cars that is going to be the difficult thing because we as humans we can develop a judgment we can see if a traffic light is broken down we can know to kind of cautiously go through a junction or if there's a road sign that's being graffitied out we can see that it was a stop sign or whatever so we can use our judgment we are masters of the grayness of the human condition right we understand that not everything is black and white for a computer however clever That's an incredibly difficult thing to teach it. So to teach a driverless car how to make a decision when there is no black and white, that's really, really tricky. So then you add those two things onto the road at the same time. So you have the grey humans, for a better word, and the black and white computer driverless cars. And we're certainly going to have challenges there's also the legal ramifications of it too and this is something that i talk to a lot of people about how will a driverless car decide say in the case of an accident up ahead how will it decide where to go should it drive into the back of the accident it because that's the route it was going on or should it veer off and risk banging into a wall and killing the occupant how can they make those decisions and their decisions that the human brain we don't get them right all the time, but we are good at. And it's a process of evolution that's gotten us there. Getting driverless cars to the point at which they think, like us, we're still very, very, very far away from that. And as far as I see it, while there are still driven cars, so human-driven cars on the road or vehicles on the road, there won't be, no-one's going to take away your steering wheel, right? Driverless cars are going to happen much more slowly, I think, than the media will we'll have, we'll have give us credit for.
1: I'm Travis Elbra. And you've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's move on to public transport then. And I want to talk particularly about railways, but I want to talk particularly even more so about underground railways and, yeah. and you know mass transport systems of the future. And, um, well, just in, in terms of studying railways for this book, mm. you sort of fell in love with that.
2: Yeah, I did. <laughs> I really did. Um, I, I said to my mum just the other day that... I didn't realise how much I loved trains and tunnels and she pointed out that both of my grandfathers were railway engineers so maybe it was in the blood somewhere but yeah no I really have fallen in love with them. They're not, you know, people don't think of trains as being super high tech or anything sexy, but I think they really are. And I think they're such a vital part of most of our cities. Like the tube, in a very real way, built London. You know, we know that tube stations were built in the countryside and then people moved to that area because there was a tube station there. It was a vital part of the city, it's a vital structure within the city, but it helped us grow. But also, you know, because I get the tube every day or I get trains all the time and I hadn't really looked at them in a kind of an engineering or in a scientific point of view. I hadn't really thought about the amount of technology behind signalling, for example, or even the material science behind the tracks or even looking further forward when we are moving towards more autonomous trains. And we already have some in London. They're just very quiet about them. When we start thinking about those The software that's going to be needed to basically translate constantly as trains drive across London. Like in Crossrail, for example, that's going across several different languages of train signals, effectively. So it would be like us having to cross the city and speak eight languages all at once. Those trains are going to have to do that hundreds and hundreds of times a day. And I hadn't really thought about them in in that way before, and now I have a real appreciation for them.
1: Well, you mentioned Crossrail, and I want to talk about tunnels. Like, we have this tunnel system of various different layers you know we've got the sort of the district line train that's basically pretty much on the surface just covered up yeah and then the really deep ones like the piccadilly line Mm. then we're going to build we're building crossrail through the middle of that how do we a build a tunnel under london but also one that's got to avoid the in existing infrastructure.
2: Yeah, so the thing about Crossrail is that it started many, many, many years ago, long before a single bit of the ground was dug up. They were doing very detailed surveys of the route. So the route, they always kind of knew where the start and end points would be, but the route in the middle was very much dependent on how they could weave through the subterranean network. And as well as the big tunnels, you also have pipes, you've got water pipes, waste pipes, electricity, and internet, you've got all of those things too. So they had to do a very detailed survey of where all of those utilities were. And of course, because the tube has been built over such a long time, there's a very long record of where those tunnels are. So that was all done first. But the thing about tunnels and and about tunnel boring machines in particular is they can't rely on something like GPS to navigate their way through anything because GPS doesn't really work underground, as you know, if you get stuck in a car park and you can't find your way out. Um, So they tend to use a laser system to basically guide themselves along this predefined route. So this survey that had been done, a computer program would be built to show what that route would look like. They also have to think about stuff like the rock type because Mm -hmm. the rock type isn't constant across London too so you have to consider the geology as well Um, but they use a laser system to basically track their progress versus this predefined route and in Crossrail in particular Tottenham Court Road which is a station that I frequent um, both as a passenger and also as a Crossrail fangirl and in that station they actually had to fit one of the new Crossrail tunnels in the space between the escalator and the top of the tube tunnel and mere millimetres above the tube tunnel and they did it during working day and they didn't even close the train station. That was how confident they were that their laser system would allow them to navigate through the London Clay at exactly the rate and in exactly the position they expected. And they got it spot on.
1: You also use Crosswell as an example of, um, there's a section in the book where you talk about trains, and particularly in terms of talking about you know the development of steam trains mm-hmm. and stuff and um, trains are big heavy things yeah. and they have problem with hills yes but they can also use those hills to their benefit as well you you demonstrate this with crossrail okay yeah
2: yeah because um in particular crossrail they've actually gone in they've gone in with this for every single station they're using gravity as their friend effectively so the running tunnels which are the tunnels that are in between stations they are lower than the tunnel box or the station box so what that means is that as a train enters a station it naturally slows down because it's going up a, when i say a hill it's a very minor slope but as you said it they struggle right so it's enough to slow the train down so then you need to apply, you know less brakes to slow that train down to the end train picks up its passengers and exits the station and it then goes downhill for a small amount of time. So it gives itself a little boost of speed. So that means that you don't need quite as much energy to start the train going so you can really use that and they're not the only ones who've done it like there's lots of um, bits on on transport for london's network where that is the case i think a lot of the jubilee line is the same but as far as i can tell they're the first ones who've done it right across the network for every station trying to make use of the issue of, of hills for trains and really the problem is is friction a lot of it is friction so you've got a steel solid steel rail and train wheels are also steel so you don't have anything you don't have a tire you know you don't have something that's gripping onto the rail and yeah if you if you increase the slope of a train track too much those steel rails just can't grip onto the train track so it will start to fall backwards and um, so as well as the weight you also have this issue with friction but the slopes and cross rail are, are uh, shallow enough that friction is not going to be an issue but they can benefit from this little gravity boost
1: one thing we've all experienced when we're on the tube, mm. on one of the deep London tubes, particularly, it seems to happen. Even though you think you've got out of the weather, yeah. um, is wind. Why does the wind come down the tube? Yeah,
2: yeah. The wind is funny because uh, it always causes really embarrassing things to happen, like lifting dresses above your head. But it's, it's produced by something called a piston effect. So next time you're in the tube, have a look at how similarly sized the train is to the tunnel that it's in now this isn't the case everywhere again some of the tubes are slightly bigger but mostly they're the same size and a normal train that's moving above the ground is constantly pushing air out of the way so it's constantly having to move air out of the way in order to move forward in a tunnel that's almost the same size as the train Air can't really get out of the way quite as easily. It's much more constrained. So what ends up happening is you get a buildup of air at the front of the train and that buildup of air slams the air molecules into each other, which heats them up. So you have this like band of hot air, this high pressure hot air at the front of the train. And then at the back of the train, you have this kind of uh, a corresponding area, which is kind of like a vacuum in some ways. It's very low pressure air, which is also much colder. So you've got this cold and hot air every time a train moves in and out of a station. And in a tube station, you've also got at least two platforms, right? So you've got this constant flux of air. And just like in a weather system, high pressure area meets low pressure area you get different temperatures, you get wind, you get an exchange of air. So yeah, and in a tunnel or in two tunnels in a tube station, and sometimes tube stations are kind of open to the elements too, like Victoria Station has an area that's above ground or my local station, which is Clapham South, faces onto the corner of Clapham Common. So it also gathers wind from the outside too it gets pushed down into the tunnel as well so as well as this piston effect wind you also do have the influence of the outside even on the really deep tunnels and together it gives you that really kind of unique wind that's unique to tube to tube stations around London really.
1: We're coming towards the end of the show and there's there's loads more in this book that we've not covered but you end with a sort of brief look at a day in the future in a a projected future city Mm. so tell us what sort of things you anticipate seeing in a future city
2: I think one of the biggest things will be the removal of, of fossil fuel cars in cities. And it is something the cities are trying to do already. But also just a better use of transport. Um, so we'll start to see things that are smarter. As far as I see it, we'll start to see a, a truly integrated transport network, which, you know, we do have in some cities and London's pretty integrated, but a true one where you get something on your phone that tells you, actually, do you know what? This train's not running here. So I've given you a discount on a train ticket if you take the other route or, you know, something as simple as being able to book your own little autonomous pod that you can share with your neighbours to get into the city. And actually, maybe the shape of cities will change as a result because there's a general kind of move away from the central business district surrounded by some suburb. There's definitely a real trend towards having areas in a city that people can work and live and, you know, school their children and socialise. So that going into the centre, I think, will become something that's very old, seen as very old-fashioned. Um, Generally, we'll also see, I hope, a much better use of resources. So like we talked about, the closing of different cycles. So having whether it's a small power plant within your building or even having glass that produces, takes sunlight and produces electricity. Or smaller things, you know, just like becoming more efficient with the way we use water. So recycling our water within the home or having time-limited showers, something as simple as that. We need to get much more conscious of the way that we use our resources. And I think that if we if we start to do that, it's going to have a real influence on the city. And the city itself will change our relationship with our resources. Lots more district systems. So instead of having a big national grid, we'll also have much more local systems like... Perhaps you and I will have shares in a wind turbine farm off the coast of Scotland or something in in 60 or 70 years. And actually we can sell our electricity back to the grid. So it becomes a much more mutual relationship. Within things like transport, we're going to, I think, see many more interesting technologies like maglev trains um, because they're getting cheaper and they're getting more exciting by the day driverless cars may come if they come they will completely transform the city they'll get rid of traffic lights they'll get rid of road signs because who needs them if you've got a computer that can read a sensor in the road right so if they if driverless cars do become a reality i think they're going to have a transformative effect on the city of course they're going to be clean fueled so they're going to have hydrogen fuel or at least electricity fueled cars and we'll just start to see um i'm hoping that we'll start to see a a kind of a better relationship with our food too uh, because as an urban liver i can buy any anything i want in my local supermarket be it an avocado from you know california or raspberries from anywhere in the world and i think that's going to change it has to change and um, shipping shipping our food huge distances is starting to become a little bit ridiculous but the good side the other side of that is i think we're going to start to see technologies that allow us to grow those things within our local city lots of urban farms lots of vertical farms lots of that interesting technology and we're really not that far from it we really aren't like all of the technologies i talk about in the book are on the cusp they're not this crazy blue sky thinking idea they really are meant to it's meant to show how close we are to achieving this but we do need to invest in, in our technology and and we need to invest in our scientists
1: That's brilliant. So I've been talking to Laurie Winkless. We've been talking about her book Science and the City, The Mechanics Behind the Metropolis,
2: which is out now
1: from Bloomsbury. Laurie, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with me.
2: My pleasure. Absolute pleasure.
1: You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
2: This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM.
1: You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little
2: Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleadams.com. Thanks for listening.